Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, special episode coming to you this evening from Auckland and Australia. We're delighted to have Ken Peace on the show. Ken is the most published living sports author in Australia, written and editing or publishing 85 books, 60 on our beautiful game of cricket. And we're here to talk a little bit about his ABC of Australian cricket, all coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Ken, welcome to the podcast, and um, yeah, look, delighted to be to be chatting with you. We've just been talking off air. You've um, visited our beautiful country in the, in recent times, so tourism back open across uh, the Tasman and up to the islands as well. But we've got you on the show tonight to talk a little bit about your ABC of Australian cricket. I guess the opening question from me, we, we gave a, a little bit of a hint in the intro, 60 cricket books, um, over 85 books you've been involved in. What keeps you coming back to the well to, to, to find stories and anecdotes about our, our beautiful game? It's a little obsessive, isn't it? I have to really get a day job. I've worked as a, a journalist, a cricket writer uh, for all the newspapers around the world, really, for 35, almost 40 years. But the last 10, I've been, if you're not, uh, maybe in Act 4 of my, my life, just uh, cooling down a little bit. I'm, I do a lot of work for P&O, the cruise lines. And as you say, we've been to New Zealand, up to Auckland and uh, the Fiordland just a couple of weeks ago, which was just sensational. But, yeah, I've loved cricket with a passion. And my dad, not only was my dad, he was my best mate. And so he would take me to the, the football in winter down here, that funny AFL game. Uh, sometimes they play at the, the cake tin there in, in Wellington. Uh, but in particular, the Test Cricket. So I've been coming to the Melbourne Cricket Ground where I live just an hour south of that ground. It's been a home away from home ever since I was in short pants, really. So uh, I've been so lucky to be able to pursue the passion that, and it still is a passion right now. So um, while I can still um, eat and breathe, I'm still going to be writing about cricket. Brilliant. And, and Ken, tell us a little bit about um, the, the most recent book. So the ABC of Australian um, cricket lots of uh, yarns and anecdotes and the, the odd you know the odd statistic thrown in there as well taking us through look I guess a little bit of a history of Australian cricket as the title says from A to Z what what made you come up with a format and and yeah how do you go about putting something like that together well it's a really quirky dictionary like we have all sorts of interesting little one-liners and two-liners so uh, people are going to um, put it pick it up, put it down, and really enjoy it. It's really small on your dial. And if you like, it was COVID-induced, as you guys know. And, uh, gee, COVID's been around the world. Melbourne was the most locked-down city of all. So we had to be home by 8 o'clock. We could only drive to the supermarket, no more than 4 or 5 Ks. And so it actually meant that I had to work pretty hard just to keep myself busy. So in 2022, this year, uh, I've actually released three books one called 15 Minutes of Fame, Australia's One Test Wonders. We did a tribute book to Shane Warne, who, of course, tragically died early in his early 50s. And now this ABC, but it's one that I've really liked. And if you like, it was triggered by Jason Warne at the memorial for Shane. And there was almost 40,000 MCG. And as one of our mates said to me, he said, well, only Pelé or um, Lionel Messi, some of the real world superstar sportsmen would have commanded that sort of crowd for, you know, their, their memorial. And, you know, Chris Martin played and it was just magnificent. Elton John. But Jason Warren, Shane's brother, got up and he said, well, none of this would have happened, you know, because uh, Shane uh, almost drowned himself at uh, at our local pier, Black Rock. 
when he was only 13 and there was a boy and there's an entry in there called David Beck. And David Beck saw Sh Shane jumped off and Shane was being a bit of a lair as he could be. And he, and he jumped off badly and he knocked himself out. This is a really big pier at Half Moon Bay. And there he was floating face down. David Beck was an older boy and he quickly saw what had happened and he brought him back into shore. Uh, but as Jason Warren said, uh, none of this would have happened. So I, I made a, a David Beck entry there and I kept on working pretty hard, coming up with all sorts of other esoteric and, and compelling little stories about various people at all levels. Yeah, it might be a little bit um, like asking you to name your, your you know, your favourite child or pets. But are there, are there any of those stories that really stand out for you as, as ones that, yeah, put, as you say, put a smile on your dial? Well, there was a one test wonder. She comes from Orange, which is um, a, a, an area in central west New South Wales. Uh, it's a flood bound at, at the moment. We're such a land of extremes bushfires in January, February and floods uh, every, every other time. Um, but this girl's name was Jo Gary and she played one test for Australia. She's one of 40 women to play one test. But her test match, the poor dear, it lasted just 30 minutes because um, there was rain. She didn't get to bat or bowl or field. Um, Australia were, were none for you know 10 after 30 minutes and the rain came down and day two and day three were washed out and she never got another opportunity. So you can be in the right place at the wrong time, and poor Joe was. So she was one of the one test wonders that I wrote about, and I did do an entry in this ABC dictionary as as well. Awesome, and and as I alluded to, or we alluded to just off air before we started recording, Ken, um, Michael, who's over there in our studio uh, with the cockatoo behind him, um, has gone through his own cricketing labour of love over the COVID lockdown putting together what I have to say is probably the biggest spreadsheet I've ever seen with uh, statistics and analytics around the 100 greatest players in, in Michael's view to, to ever play uh, test cricket. Clearly, there's a little bit of an Australian bias, which we give him a lot of grief for on the podcast. But um, mm. I, I guess what we're really keen as um, look, all children of the, the 80s and 90s, that we've delved back and got players like Neil Harvey, Alan Davidson and uh, Keith Miller, course the don in there as well um enlighten us a little bit about some of those uh, you know those players because we never got to see them play we you know we never really um took in i guess their achievements other than the folklore stories but yeah, yeah. any particular things about that little quartet that yeah, yeah enlighten us on yeah, some wonderful, wonderful players. Uh, Neil Harvey was the youngest of the Bradman Invincibles, and he's now 94, almost 95. He watches the races in the afternoon. He'll have a nice McLaren Vale white. Uh, he really loves his wine. But he's delightful company. He doesn't get around all that well these days, but at the same time, he's still sharp as a tack. But we talk, and his hero was Don Bradman. And, and Bradman, as we all know, averaged 99.94. And there's something about that story. If he hadn't made a duck and scored even four runs, he would have averaged an even century. But there's just something nice about uh, no one being able to average three figures. But Bradman's influence was amazing because off the field, uh, for 30 years, he was an administrator averaging three committee meetings a week every week, every year for 35 years. Now, that's about 1,500 um, <laughs> committee meetings. That it, it is going to, it's just a huge amount. But as a cricketer, we talk about the 99 average. Um, if every catch uh, that he had given had been taken at the time, he still would have averaged 71. So, 
So that's better than Graham Pollock. It's better than your own hero, Bert Sutcliffe or Martin Crow. It's just an incredible statistic. And yet he was a, a genius, Bradman, but he had some warts as well. Didn't always have empathy with uh, the guys that uh, swore like a sailor, like a Cess Pepper who played just after the war, should have gone to New Zealand in, 90, in 1945, or World Series cricket, like Ian Chappell uh, would come and address the board and say, you know, we're getting, the guy in the gate on a Sunday at the MCG is getting more money than us, Sir Don. And he would sit forward and he would say, well, as soon as cricket becomes a business, it's not such a nice game, Ian. Um, but he didn't see the overall picture. And, of course, World Series cricket happened soon after that. And the players now should bless Kerry Packer uh, every day of the week because they're making all around the world terrific money as they rightfully deserve to be. I'm not going to. I'm not going to drop uh, the fact that I have read and have a copy of Bradman's of the Bush. But I read today that Bradman did make four in his last game as a 55-year-old. So he made up for not getting four in his last test by getting four in his last game for a for a barrel invitation eleven. Ken, yeah, lots and lots of stories about cricketers of yesteryear and in that post-war and pre-war era. You've watched probably more cricket than most. You've been involved in more anecdotes and stories about those players of of years gone by more than most, I would say. In your view, have you got any tips, tricks, points of view around how you might compare players of a bygone era to modern players? I know it's very difficult and lots of things have changed, but is there anything that you think transfers across eras or points of comparison that you would bring to the table if you had to compare a, a Neil Harvey to a, a, I don't know, a, a Travis Head, for example, middle-order batters from, from different eras? Yeah. See, uh, Harvey, I think he had 137 test innings, correct me if I'm wrong. He was never stumped, even once in a test match. And he would come yards down the wicket. We talk about Bradman. He played uh, when he made 254 at Lords in 1930. Farmer White was bowling left arm orthodox. He said Bradman was coming so far down the wicket, we could have almost shaken hands, he said. <laughs> Harvey, Harvey was the same. He would get it on the full. And Laker and Locke and Huey Tayfield of the 50s was a star of Springbok, as they were back then. Harvey was just miraculous. So those champions, the same with uh, the rugby footballers, the AFL footballers and the champion cricketers, they had that special something. And so if they had the opportunity to use the huge bats that they use these days, they would hit it miles and they would be such champions. The same as... People like Labashane, who's just come off a, a twin cent, you know, twin century, basically three hundreds in, in in the same game just a week ago, uh, albeit against a pretty weak uh, Test opposition in the West Indies. These boys, if you put them back into the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, they'd be stars too. It, it, it is hard to define because, um, especially against special opposition. But I think that, say, in the West Indies, for example, had all those star fast bowlers in the late 70s and early 80s, and they might have gone nine or ten years uh, as world champions. I think they only had one defeat maybe in New Zealand when Colin Croft ran through the umpire that, yeah. that time. Freddie pretty, pretty Goodhall, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But if you can make runs against the West Indies, and Kim Hughes did it one day, and he got 100 in Melbourne on a green top, Australia were four for 29. Kim got hit on the box first ball by Garner. And he thought, I just have to play my shots here. And Greg Chappell said he made the best 100, maybe the best 100 I've ever seen at the MCG. And so he played out of his skin this particular day. He was never as good again, even though he had his moments. But it just goes to show you, I think if you can do it against the, the world's 
best players, uh, the best buying attacks, well, then you get special, special uh, accord and deservedly so. Um, whereas, obviously, Labuschagne, who's made 200 and 100 against the weak West Indies, that's not going to go down as his best ever innings. Maybe it'll be an 80 against England after he got hit by Jofra Archer uh, early on in his substitute game when he played uh, against England for the first time. Mm. Um, segwaying ever so slightly, and I just want to talk about one of my, uh, I guess, cult hero cricketing icons growing up, although I didn't get to see him very much. Just tell us a little bit about the experience and the journey that you went on writing a book with Max Walker. I think most cricket fans will remember Max more from his appearances on Billy Birmingham's 12th Man and Wired World of Sports um, CDs and tapes rather than as a, a cricketer and as a player. But tell us about the experience of writing a book with Max and what it was like to work with Tangles. Well, he was saying, like of all those 60-plus uh, cricket books that I've done, um, quite a few of them have been with the cricketers, like a Brad Hodge, Terry Jenner, who was Shane Warne's coach. He, he was an amazing person to work with, as was Max. Like, he was so popular. You know, he was, if you like, from a popularity point of view, the Shane Warne of the 70s, along with Lily and Thompson and Walker. They were the three mainstays. Uh, of Australian cricket from a, an attacking point of view. And in, in the Tomo's first test match against England, uh, Ian Chappell was going to open Lily with the wind and tangles into it. And then he said, oh, hang on a minute, Tang. Uh, Tomo, you come and have a role. He became the fastest into the wind ball you've ever seen. This <laughs> was an amazing character in that um, he was right up with the technology. And while he's been gone, gee, maybe eight or ten years now, he was the first to have podcasts. Uh, he was big on the internet. Everywhere he went, he would take a photo. He'd put it up on Facebook and then Twitter. He was really tuned into what was happening. So um, he had so much skills, not only as a cricketer, but off the field. You know, Billy Birmingham made him a star, but he was a sensational bloke, uh, Tang, and it was just really wonderful just sitting, as we are now, chatting and conversing. And what about this? What about that? And mm. yeah, it, it, it's so much fun meeting your heroes. And I've been so lucky over the time as a cricket writer to meet just about every important cricketer, especially from Australia, um, since 1900. Like Bill Ponsford was born in 1900, and I interviewed him as a 79-year-old for his 80th birthday for the magazine Cricketer. And I said to old Bill Ponsford, uh, Mr Ponsford, of course, um, you were such a star. If Bradman hadn't been around, you would have been maybe the greatest star uh, that's ever been in Australian cricket. Why didn't you try and chase the Don? And he said, it was no use trying to chase uh, Don Bradman, Ken. He was just so obsessive. It was impossible. Even I couldn't do it, he said. So it was really um, riveting. And he could remember as a 15-year-old playing his first club cricket game at the Shane Warne Oval now at St Kilda, the Junction Oval, in short pants. And he even told me the name of the off-spin bowler bowling to him. He said, I only got 15 in singles. I couldn't hit it off the square. But this guy, Cannon, didn't get me out, Ken. So they're just amazing. Um, and he was 79 years old, but he had the clarity and memory um, it's just magnificent when you meet those sorts of fellows. And I always, with the major interviews, try and get an autograph if I like. I was so overcome that I, I forgot about old Bill. Uh, I've since collected one a lovely um, signed picture of him. But at the time, I just I just forgot about it. But it was so nice to meet him. Um, I mean, even just hearing you talk, it's very clear that you've you've got stories. Uh, you know, it's, it's great. We could sit here, you know, listening to, to all of these guys. One, um, someone I really wanted to hear about um, that we mentioned, um, Michael's Hall of Fame, who seemed like an you know enormously interesting character was Keith Miller. 
it's yeah, someone I, you yeah. know, I don't know a huge amount about, but you know, even just you go on his quick info profile and there's just story after story. Can you kind of enlighten us a few things about him? Yeah. You know, he just seemed like he was like, a, he, you know, he talked about rock stars before. It seemed like he was, he was one of the yeah. rock stars of when he played. Absolutely. And I was lucky enough, he lived locally. I'm at sort of an hour south and Nugget was an hour and 10 minutes south. And so I'd go and see him and have a cup of tea or something stronger, whatever he felt like in his 80s, pretty regularly. And he rang up one day and his uh, his mate was Michael Parkinson. Uh, Of course, Michael Parkinson has interviewed all the big actors, the actresses, all the important people in the world. Did you see it, Ken? No, Nugget, I missed it. Oh, I was on enough rope last night. Guess what he said out of all those important people he's ever interviewed? Guess who he said was his all-time hero? I said, I've got no idea, Nugget. And Nugget was 82, 83 at the time. He said, me, me, little old <laughs> Nugget, he said. And he was so excited. He was like a 16 or 17-year-old that Michael Parkinson had remembered him. He was just so wrapped. He was delightful company, Nugget. Like, um, he had four kids by his first marriage. And, of course, he, he stepped out with Princess Margaret, the Queen's sister. Word got back to Peg in Sydney about Keith's deliances and... Oh, well, that's Keith for you. He's always had a way with the girl, she said. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so he he was the Errol Flynn of his time, uh, like uh, so, so handsome. He was a war hero. He was as much loved in England as he was in Australia. He'd go to the Lord's Test match every year. Uh, John Paul Getty would sponsor him for about 19 or 20 years. But he was good enough to open the bowling with Ray Lindwall, along with Lily, maybe the greatest post-war fast bowler before McGrath in the modern age. But he also battled at number three or number four. So the only one that's ever looked like doing that is like a Shane Watson. Uh, and Shane was a probably a batting all-rounder, bowled pretty fast, especially early. But Nugget was the real deal. Uh, he bowled quick, 90 miles an hour. He was a, an AFL footballer. He represented his province, his state, Victoria. And he was a magnificent company. So, again, I was just so blessed. And I've got some some of my books in my library where I'm sitting now, all been signed by Nugget and with a nice little pithy message from him. It's just lovely to have known those sorts of guys. And, and look, um, we, we're doing a lot of talking about Australian cricket, which is, which is fair enough. But I do spot in the background, I think, in your library uh, – Bert Suck, a book about Bert Sutcliffe there that um, yeah. I actually worked on yeah. a little bit. Um, we published that. Um, I, yeah, I work at a publishing house and worked on that book. Yeah. So um, I'd love to kind of get your impressions about Bert Sutcliffe because I think for New Zealand listeners, sort of of our generation, we don't quite realise, I guess, the, the high regard that he was held in at the time when he was playing. And, you know, we've had talks, uh, you know, even just on our podcast about kind of, you know, who are the best you know, when we're in lockdown, we're doing all the who's the best sort of four or five batsmen for New Zealand and all those kind of things. And yeah. and I think Sutcliffe isn't always immediately first to mind when, when you think of those conversations, but certainly in his era, he was one of the greats, right? Oh, yeah. I've been to Eden Park and the Bert Sutcliffe Room and the lovely Cricket Library there. He was magnificent. One of my favourite books, maybe the favourite book I've got is a New Zealand book. It's called What Are You Doing Out Here?, and it was Bert Sutcliffe's quote to Bob Blair. This was the 1953-54 series in South Africa. And it's if, if um, all the listeners and viewers haven't seen it, it's a magnificent book. And Bob Blair's fiance had been killed. Uh, there was a huge train crash. Everybody on the, on the plane at Christmas time died. And the word 
got back to Bob Blair, who was in the middle of a test match. And so he stayed back at the hotel room. But South Africa were losing the game. And Bert Sutcliffe had been hit from pillar to post. And there's a famous picture of him, um, no helmets or whatever. And he was swathed in bandages from being hit. And he was hitting out hard. The ninth wicket fell. Everybody started to troop off. But then, and it brings tears to my eyes, Bob Blair walked out. And uh, it was amazing because Sutcliffe said to him, what are you doing out here, Bob? You should be back at the hotel. He said, I just wanted to help you, mate. I just wanted to help you. Mm. And they added... They added um, something like 30 or 40 and three overs for the last week. It was like a 2020 game. Mm. And I can't remember who went out, but they walked off together uh, arm in arm. It was just so emotional. One of the amazing untold, um, little-known um, stories of Test cricket. And I do recognise, I do recommend that book. Uh, what are you doing out here? It's on my website, cricketbooks.com.au, if you can't find it in sunny New Zealand. Uh, but Sutcliffe was an amazing player, like John Reid, obviously uh, older, in, 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 into the 60s, you know, he lasted longer. But Bert, from the late 40s, and unfortunately, uh, we only saw him play in Australia three or four times, first-class games on the way home from that from one of the tours. And yet he made centuries, maybe twin centuries in Melbourne from, uh, from memory. But he's a left-hander. And he was the Martin Crow of his time. Um, but it's interesting you talk about, uh, you know, the best seven New Zealand 11. Martin, uh, I read Ross Taylor's book and I just loved Ross Taylor's book. His grandma was saying, well, always play a straight bat, Ross, and don't forget to take a single to mid on to get us get off the mark. And that was his grandma. And uh, Ross put all this in. And Martin Crow was his mentor, and they were such great buddies. And Ross Taylor said that in the conversations with Martin, and of course Martin has gone, unfortunately, died too young, much too young. And he said, um, at, uh, at Roscoe Tales, he said, you know, I'm a lock at number four in any of the greatest New Zealand teams. You'll have to bat behind me, he said. <laughs> so uh, he had this great sense of humour, both uh, Crow. Uh, and and also um, uh, Ross Taylor uh, and, and just incidentally I went to Otago to the University Oval just a few weeks ago uh, seeing uh, the, the, the Centrals play the Otago boys and mm. Ross didn't even get a bat it was like a it was a 50-50 game but it was all over in about 20 overs but it was just wonderful to see him out there and still serving New Zealand cricket you know it really was wonderful so you know it's great that those boys are giving back to domestic cricket when I arrived Doug Bracewell was there mm. And bowling really quick from the far end, I said, uh, that looks like Doug Bracewell. He's the bloke who cleaned up Australia 11 years ago. He said, that's him. He's in his 30s now, but he's still good, isn't he? I said, he's sensational. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I love cricket. And, and it, it probably sounds like I do too, lads, isn't it? I'll go anywhere to watch a cricket match. Uh, 65 books and counting, Ken. I mean, countless stories. Many, many happy hours of reading uh, in the lounge room or in the smallest room of the house, as I often read my, my cricket books. Have you got any stories left in you? How many more books do you think you've got left in the in the top two inches of the Ken Peace brain? Well, it, it just depends on what comes along. Like I mentioned this Cess Pepper, who was the best Australian cricketer never to play for Australia, should have gone to New Zealand just after the war. But he warred with Don Bradman, got him out LBW with his flipper, maybe the best uh, delivery before Shane Warne came along ever invented. And the umpire wouldn't give it out because it was Don Bradman. So he swore like a sailor, this boy, Pepper, <laughs> who was from uh, the Central West, just near Forbes, which is un underwater. Uh, but, yeah... 
that biography idea came up because uh, a mate of mine was doing his research. He said, you know, in that in the mid-30s, Cess took 120 wickets and made 2,500 runs, and then he went to Sydney grade cricket, and he should have played test cricket. And so he was doing some research for me. My mate in Parks, Greg Morrissey, Parks is where the big the, the big dish is, and it's on TV in, the, in Australia tonight, the, the Dish, which is a lovely old Australian movie. And... Yeah, I just um, something just appealed to me about the Pepper story, and I I, uh, I went to uh, to Parks, and I, I met his uh, uh, younger brother then, who was 98, 97, and still amazing memory. Keith Pepper and his sister signed the book for me, and I, I did a lovely limited edition. So I'm sure something's going to come up in the future. I love cricket, not too much to uh, far too much to not keep writing about it. And. Ken, a, f- a final one from uh, from us here. Uh, there's a lot of talk at the moment. The T20 game, obviously, infiltrating the eyeballs. Um, we've seen some fantastic test cricket happen even over the course of the last 24 hours. W- what's your view on the, the future of the game that you've obviously invested so much uh, time in? You know, Can we still accept, expect to be seeing um, test cricket in 20 years' time? What, what's your view on where, where our game's going to go in the, in the very near future? Well, Dean Jones had been worried about the future of Test cricket, but there's no doubt the boys, that is still the ultimate. Okay, some of them are white ball specialists, and like a Cameron White, for example, played 100 times for Australia, only four Test matches, and there's some uh, that have played purely white ball cricket. But I've got no doubt that it's going to survive and thrive because, like we've seen Brendan McCullum, his influence on England, the way that they played this first Test match against Pakistan, it was just irresistible uh, viewing and to see these boys playing their first game come out and just smash the ball the way that they did. So people are going to go along to test matches to see that sort of style. Um, the, the the best game I saw this calendar year, I've seen two games. One was at Monica Oval in Canberra, where Bradman made four in his last innings, age 55, incidentally. A women's test, Australia versus England. It was a sensational game, played in fantastic spirit. The girls, the best girls are so, so good. But then it was the 2020 game, 86,000 MCG, this time last month, India v Pakistan. And Kohli made one of the best innings of, you know, I, can't, I don't think he got 100, but I think he got in the high 80s, something like that. But it was a classic innings. And Greg Chappell wrote about it and said, you couldn't see cricket, because they were cricket shots, he said. You couldn't see cricket played better than that. So when you get those great stars playing all three forums, I've got no doubt that uh, cricket's going to continue to thrive. Okay, the 50-50 game may may be the one to give way, like the 100 is, is doing well in England. Certainly 2020 has got a, a real niche with IPL and all the various competitions, but we're still going to, the tradition, I, I, I bowl leggies. And so 2020 isn't suited to me. The ground's just, <laughs> they, they need to be much, much bigger, even the MCG. But test cricket's going to survive. And, uh, and the fielding skills, the improving, the bowling skills, um, you know, with the uh, change-ups, the change-downs, uh, the tactics that are there now so brilliantly enunciated by uh, Ricky Ponting, for example. Um, he just loves it. He says, if anything, the strategy in a T20 game, it surpasses a test match. So if Ricky Ponting says that, well, he's you, you just have to believe him because he's 
maybe uh, the world's number one cricket expert uh, from a retired player's point of view going around now. Yep, tests are going to be okay. T20, no problem. Not sure about 50-50, but um, yeah, cricket's going to survive, especially when you get the boys playing in the right spirit uh, and the way this test match was played in Pakistan at uh, the Pindi Stadium. Sensational stuff. Awesome. Ken, well, as the boys in uh, the studio said, I'm sure we could sit here and talk for, for hours about all things cricket. And I'm sure um, you'll be back on the show at some point in, in our cricketing uh, future, because um, no doubt there's another book in you that we can uh, we can have a little chat about. Um, I'll say it very quietly. I agree with you on Ricky Ponting, and that pains me to say as an Englishman. <laughs> he's got one of the best cricket brains um, going. But look, a fascinating chat um, and a fascinating book, The ABC of Australian cricket if you want to give a plug for that website one more time uh, please do so a, a fantastic little stocking filler uh, in time for christmas but there's the the enlarged cover i can guarantee the book isn't that big so yeah you, you're not you, you're not going to have a really big amazon shipping bill it is just a, a paperback size but where, where can people find that yeah. in time for christmas again yeah, it's cricketbooks.com.au. And for all your, your New Zealand uh, good folk, I'll send it out post-free for everyone and I'll sign it. So everyone in New Zealand who answers the ad, cricketbooks.com.au, just tell them that you've been listening to Binksy and all the boys and I'll look after them with a post-free offer for Christmas. Awesome. Ken, pleasure to chat with you. Thanks very much for joining us on the, on the Top Order podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure, boys. All the very best. Take care.